Thanks very much, Adam. Nice to be here. Happy New Year, everyone. Now we're in Luke chapter 3. Hope everyone got on well over Christmas and you got everything you wanted. Did anybody get a new coat? Right, you're in a bit of danger, I'm afraid. This morning here in this passage, what did you do with your old coat? That's the real question, right, when you got your new one. Because the main character in our talk today, it says, whoever has two tunics, in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, whoever has two tunics, or coats, is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So anybody can have any leftover food from Christmas, like cheese or wee sweets or those kind of things. Well, John is pretty bold in telling us what we should do with all of our access things. This is John the Baptist, and he's very direct. But before we dismiss him as very extreme, let's just listen to all that he has to say, because it's actually called good news here in verse uh, one, uh, in verse 18. So we're going to read the whole passage, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. So it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ or the Messiah, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So this is John the Baptist, and 
this all happened just before Jesus began his miracles and his teaching. Before Jesus came on the scene, this guy came on the scene, John the Baptist, and he was sent to introduce Jesus, kind of like the warm-up before the main act of a concert or something. So John was kind of a wild man, and he lived outdoors in the wilderness, it says. He was quite a character, so he drew a lot of attention and drew a lot of crowds to come and see him. Multitudes went because of his unusual behavior and his message, because he was so bold and direct. Look what it says here in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And the people of the nation started to recognize that he was a prophet sent by God with a message from God for them, right? Unlike many of the prophets of the Old Testament, he was a nonconformist. Right? He was entirely unimpressed with all the religious show in Jerusalem and the temple and all the pomp of the priests. And his dad, Zechariah, as you've probably read already in chapter 2, his dad was a priest. Zechariah was a priest. So John should have been a priest, but he rejected all of that and instead out he went into the wilderness shouting about all the sins of the nation, calling on them to repent. And And like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets, he was very bold and confrontational in doing so. He even, at the end, we notice he even rebuked King Herod, and he ended up in prison. So Jesus actually tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that he was the greatest prophet. This guy, John, is the greatest prophet who ever lived. Now, it doesn't mean he was better than Jeremiah and Isaiah and his in his behavior or or something like that, or more important than them. It's more that his job was more important. That's what it means, that he had the greatest job of any prophet who has ever lived. Not that he was more talented, but his role was the most crucial ever because, this is what it says, he was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. He was sent to prepare the way for God himself to come to that nation of Israel. For God himself to come. No other prophet had that job. This is a unique rule. And John was meant to prepare the nation, of course, for the arrival of Jesus Christ, to recognize Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And even though John was the greatest prophet, as Jesus himself said, he said in this passage, the one coming after him would be far greater than he was. It would be incomparably greater. That's what John himself says. He says, he's going to be far greater than any prophet, than any man. This one coming after me, the one I have been sent to introduce, he would be none other than God incarnate. This is God himself had become a man. But this is the problem. John knew that not everyone would recognize just how great Jesus is. Not everyone would recognize his greatness. And many of the people even who came to hear John would perhaps think John was quite an interesting, entertaining kind of character, but they wouldn't really listen. They wouldn't really understand his message. And even today, there's millions of people who have heard of Jesus Christ, but they don't yet see just who he is. Not really. They don't understand. They don't yet get the implications that the creator of this universe walked in his own world. They haven't grasped the implications of that. Why? Now, why do do people find this so hard to grasp? Well, for the same reason that John will confront these people, 
and us with. John knew that in order to see it, look at what he says, in order to see the salvation of God, they needed to be prepared. That's why John had been sent. That's why he had come, to prepare the people to see it, to see who Jesus Christ is and see the salvation that he was bringing. But in order to prepare them, there was one the preparation meant one thing, and that was repentance. Do you see what John has sent? To proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John had one message for everybody, repent. This was the, the preparation that was needed in order to see the salvation that Jesus was bringing. I, I'm not sure we'd be inviting John if he was around nowadays. We'd be inviting John over to our Christmas parties or anything because he's going to preach about repentance. That was his one message to everybody who came his way. And nowadays, we prefer to surround ourselves with positive people, right? In our modern culture, there's a whole drive to have messages of affirmation. Many things that the Bible actually calls sin, you know, they're to be affirmed and encouraged even, enthusiastically. Our people are in danger of being canceled. Well, John would not feature on many keynote speaker lists with his message of repentance. He'd be canceled everywhere, I think, nowadays. But this wasn't his message. Did you notice that already? He was sent by God to preach repentance. <laughs> the word of God came to John in the wilderness. And he used this symbol of water baptism. It was like a symbolic burial. So the people had to publicly acknowledge that they were sinners who needed new life from God. They were so dead, they were to be just buried. That's what the water baptism symbolized, really. And his baptism was a way for people to admit before God that they were not good enough for him and desperately needed to be forgiven. And John says that it was, it was for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? Preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is why this is good news. We sinners can be saved if we are prepared to admit that we're sinners. That's what John is saying. You can be forgiven. You just have to be prepared to admit that you need to be. John knew that repentance was essential. It would be impossible to benefit from God's salvation unless the people saw they needed it. Just like a doctor can do nothing to help someone who thinks they're well and doesn't need any help. Right? You have to see your need first. So that's what John is there to try to get the people to see their need. If the people of Israel did not first see that they were sinners in danger of God's judgment, they would never see that Jesus' death on the cross was, had any purpose. They would never see the salvation that Jesus was bringing. So John proclaimed that everyone should publicly admit that they were spiritually sick, guilty sinners who need to be saved, and they would admit that before God himself by being baptized. Okay, that was what John was doing, preparing the people. But John knew the human heart, and the human heart is genius at justifying our sin. And he knew some people would agree in theory, maybe even go along with the ritual of baptism, to try and escape the consequences that John was warning about. But, but they had no intention of changing. And that's why John calls them a brood of vipers, right? Like a, a bunch of snakes, he says. Like snakes who slither away from the fire without changing from being snakes. They're still snakes. 
So John says, I, want, I need to see real evidence of repentance, of a willingness to change what he calls bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. This is not just a wee ritual you do and then you escape. There's got to be a change coming here, a real change. And true repentance is not just saying sorry for having done some wrong. It is something much more deeper and more fundamental. I think all of us need to understand this. Loads of us think repentance is just saying sorry, but it's more deep than that. It's not just the things I have done, but it's who I am that's wrong. Right to the core of me. It's not just admitting that I have sinned, but that I am a sinner, that I deserve death, that there's nothing good in me, and I need to be forgiven and changed, both. And John wasn't going to accept anybody saying sorry in order to escape the punishment with no intention of being changed, of being fundamentally saved. And he also knew others would try to deny their need of repentance. They would try to convince themselves that they were acceptable to God just as they are because of their background and family heritage, because of their ancestor Abraham was acceptable to God. So they were acceptable as well. So he don't, John, is in, in his characteristic directness, says, that is a load of rubbish. It does not impress God that you'd come from Abraham's line. He could make more children from Abraham out of these rocks if he wanted to. You all need to repent, every single person here. There was no feeling John, was there? No religious words, no rituals, no family backgrounds would excuse anybody. Each person needed to personally repent, admit before God they needed his salvation personally. And John was right, this is still essential. <laughs> we haven't changed this message in 2,000 years. If you have never repented, then there is no getting out of it. There's no hiding behind family or religion. You will never see God's salvation until you first own your need of it, until you see your need of it, until you're prepared to genuinely acknowledge before God that you're a guilty sinner this is the essential prerequisite needed in order for anyone to be saved. So John was spot on. He was completely right. Even if he is an unusual character, if he was still around today, maybe we should go to hear John and be prepared to listen to what he has to confront each of us with. And I was thinking about that. If he came here, if he came to my house or came to this church or whatever, what would he confront us with? Because you, know, you see the way he confronted three different people here? He, John was very perceptive about what real repentance actually looks like, how it will show itself in a person's life. And he did this with the general crowds, he did this with tax collectors, and he did this with soldiers, three types of people. And he pointed out what repentance would look like in their life. So what would he say to us if he was to come here? And certainly his message to the ordinary people, the crowds, would apply to us, just as we were thinking. If you have two tunics, coats, give one away. If you have food, give to someone who doesn't. I wonder to myself, would John actually be horrified at the sheer materialism and greed in our culture? You know, if he asked me, now, <laughs> if he asked me, how many coats do I have? I would probably have to go and count them, to be honest, and get back to him. 
right? But, but he doesn't understand our weather in this country. It's very complicated. Uh, but maybe if he looked in my fridge, he might be amazed at all the food that I've got. John might be shocked at our access of everything, which is especially evident at this time of year. And especially if he knew so many in our world have still so little. And perhaps we are so blind even to our own sin, we could do with John in his bold directness coming and pointing out the obvious to us as well. And then the tax collectors, they ask him, what should they do? And they were notorious for abusing their position over the people and charging more than they should to make themselves rich. And John says, only collect what you're authorized to take. No abuse of your power or position. And he said the same to the soldiers because they would use, you know, violence and threats to take bribes. And he says, none of that. You'd be content with your wages. So repentance is, is about facing up to and admitting the greed and selfishness in our hearts that make us do these kind of things. Now, we may not cheat or steal, but many of us overwork in our obsession to earn more money than we need. And many others underwork and cheat our employers. And John is very specific here, isn't he? <laughs> He's far too specific for our liking. Like, we like general repentance and general sin. We don't mind admitting that we're sinners. Yeah, we come here every week and admit that we're sinners. But don't get too specific about actual sins, right? That we, or ask us details about what we do with our money. That's personal and private. So John, but John is not trying to make us feel bad. He is trying to make us face reality of our hearts. That's all he's doing. And be willing to change everything. It's, it's, it's only, John knows that we can't change ourselves. He couldn't change us. It's only the Lord that can actually change our hearts from the, the, these kind of things, the, the corruption that's in there. And, and he says, you have to be prepared to admit it, or that's the thing that'll hold the back, back the Lord from working in your life. Even as Christians, we can experience very little of the Lord's presence and power because of our blindness to our sins. Because our selfishness and greed, they can be real barriers that stop the Lord from actually working in our lives. And, and this quotation in this passage, which, which is quoting from the, the words of Isaiah, the prophet, written 700 years before this, it actually predicts the coming of John and it compares him to a forerunner. Now, a forerunner was someone who ran ahead of an important, like ran a fore in front of an important person like a king. So say a king was on a journey and the forerunner ran in front of the king's procession to the next town and, and to tell them to prepare. The king is coming. Get yourselves ready, right? And, and the town would then go on oh, and tidy up the place and fill in the potholes and take away the rubbish and remove all the obstacles so that the king could come through in his chariot or whatever in a nice, pleasant way and be impressed. It would, it would make way for the king. And this was John's job. He was to clear the way for God. And John was telling people, clear the obstacles from your life in your hearts and allow God to come in and save you, to bring his, his forgiveness and his salvation, his transformation of your hearts. 
And, and, and that meant acknowledging their evil motives, their attitudes, their thoughts and behaviors that build up in our hearts and being prepared to rip those down. And this still applies to us. When we're genuinely willing to examine our actions, our thoughts and motives, and admit when we are wrong, the king will come in and transform us. He still will. That king still comes. And Jesus will have this clear path to change our hearts. This is why this is good news. It doesn't matter what condition our hearts are in. It doesn't matter our, our selfishness, our greed, all those things. If we are willing to be honest, God is able and willing to change that. He can come in. The only barriers to God working in our hearts is denial and refusing to repent. That's, that's all John is saying. So let's look over this past year. It's a good time, isn't it, to look over the past year. Has God been working to change us? Have we actually become any less selfish, any more like Christ in this past year? If there hasn't been much work of God in my heart, do you know where the barriers have come from? Me. I've gotten his way. He, he'll change us if he's allowed in. If there's a way in, he will change us. But nothing will happen until we're willing to flatten the hills and fill in the holes and prepare the way for the Lord to be the center of our lives. So we can see that John was quite a character, wasn't he? He's bold, he's daring, he's intimidating, he's uncompromising, and he caused a, actually a real stir in the nation. It says the people were in expectation. There was rumors going around everywhere, thousands coming out to see him. They hadn't seen a straight-talking prophet like this in hundreds of years, and, and everyone realized God is doing something here. And some people even started to wonder if he was the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, who would come and save the nation. But he insisted, no, I am not. I am just the one preparing the way. The one coming after me, I, I'm not even worthy to un untie his shoelaces in a sense. I just baptize people in water, John says. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You know, all I do is put people into water as a symbol of their repentance before God. He can put people into the Holy Spirit and connect them to God forever. And this is why John is so bold and so direct because there is so much at stake. The rewards are so great for them and for us. If we prepare the way for the Messiah to work in us, he will unite us to God to live with God forever. This is what John is saying. There is a big salvation coming. This is huge. And there's another major difference which makes it all the more urgent. John says he's warning people to repent, but this guy, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John says, I'm just warning people about the judgment of God. He's bringing it. He is the one who will bring the judgment. He is the judge who will decide everyone's destiny forever. And John actually uses a farming metaphor here to compare Jesus to like a farmer who separates the valuable wheat from the worthless chaff. And in the final judgment, Jesus will separate the valuable people from the worthless people. Bring those of value into his eternal kingdom and cast the rest away 
forever. He will keep the wheat and let the chaff blow away in the, in the fire of God's judgment. And this is why John is so urgent. You get his impression now? Because the consequences are so great. The salvation he brings is wonderful. He will unite us to God even though we're guilty sinners. But the judgment he is bringing is so fearsome. And if we never repent, if we are unwilling to change, if we insist that we're fine the way we are, if we only listen to those who will affirm us, the positive messages, there's a real danger we will end up as worthless junk, is what John is saying. Blown away by the final judgment to eternal perdition. So John is saying repentance isn't easy. It costs us now. It can cost a lot. It will hurt our pride. It will maybe even hurt our pockets. Yet it pays off in the long run. It prepares the way for God to come in and transform us to be of eternal value to him forever. So John was totally right to be so direct, so confrontational, but there was one thing that John didn't understand. God had not explained to him that Jesus was not going to do both these things at once. Because John says here, look, the Messiah will do two things. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He would unite people to God by putting them into the Holy Spirit, and he would bring the fire of God's judgment to this world. But John did not realize it was going to be a long time, thousands of years between those two things. See, Jesus did pour out the Holy Spirit a mere three years after John said this. In the year 33 AD, just after Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension, he poured out the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And you know what that did? That united people to God forever through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has done the first thing. He has baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's been almost 2,000 years since that day. And Jesus is still uniting people to God through the Holy Spirit. But he hasn't yet brought the baptism of fire. He hasn't. Someday in the future, he will bring the judgments of God on this world. And John knew that Messiah was coming to sort out all evil in the world, but he did not realize just how patient and long-suffering Jesus would be. John actually said, look, the axe is lying at the base of the tree. And any minute the farmer, the Messiah, is going to come out and cut the tree down unless it starts to produce good fruit of repentance. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's about to judge. But it's still in his hand. And he still hasn't judged. He will judge in the second coming. When Jesus appears in, the, in this same chapter, we see that he has no intention of executing the final judgment. Actually, Jesus himself says in John chapter 12, verse 47, I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. So he came to save the world the first time. But in the second coming, he will come to judge the world. And John, like many prophets in the Old Testament, was not told that there would be two comings, that there would be this massive time gap between the two comings of Jesus. Jesus came the first time to die on the cross, to rise again, to ascend to heaven, and to pour out the Holy Spirit, all to save the world from the sins, to bring forgiveness, to unite us to God. He will come back someday, what we call the second coming, and that time it will be to pour out the judgments of God on the evil of this world. 
In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul tells us that God has set a day in the future in which Jesus will come back to earth to judge all mankind. So John was so convinced that the Messiah would deal with evil very soon that he was willing to confront everyone about their sin, even King Herod. And John actually rebuked Herod for taking his brother's wife. And instead of repenting, Herod had John locked up in prison. That was one way to shut him up. If you don't want John to come, you don't want those, Herod canceled John. Didn't want that kind of message. And Herod had many coats, I'm sure. And he had a lot of food. I had a lot of women, it seems, as well. And he didn't want John telling him to repent of his selfish greed. And in Matthew's gospel, we actually discover that Herod went even further and eventually had John beheaded at one of his parties. He definitely wasn't going to have John spoil his parties. And the truth here is that God, even though repentance is essential, God will not force and cannot force any of us to repent. Not Herod or anybody else. And if we are to escape the final judgment, we must repent But if we want to shut our ears and carry on living whatever way we please, then God will let us. Now, whenever Christ returns, Herod will face the justice and wrath of God for all the evil he ever did, especially what he did to John and locking him up and eventually taking off his head. But God, in his grace and and patience, gives all of us, even Herod, time and space to repent. But if we refuse, if we shut our ears, we will face the justice of God. Jesus Christ is coming back to deal with all the evil, and that will include the wrong that I have done, the greed and selfishness in my heart, not just Herod's. And all of our hope, our only hope, is to listen to John as he pleads with us here and be willing to admit our need of forgiveness and salvation, to make the way clear in our lives for a new king, for Jesus Christ to come into our hearts. When he is giving a free pass into our lives, he will save us, he will forgive us of all our sin, and he will unite us to God through the Holy Spirit. And then we have nothing to fear whenever the judgment comes. So John's message really is good news. I hope you've seen that by now. It is good news. Do you know what it means? It means evil will not win. Jesus Christ will come to sort out all the evil in this world. It means wicked men like Herod will face justice whenever Jesus returns to judge. But the trouble with that is is we will face justice as well. But John has even more good news then. He says, if if we are willing to repent, that's all it takes. If we are not justifying our sin, not shutting our ears, not hiding behind religion or rituals, but admitting that we are guilty sinners before God in need of forgiveness and change, then we can be forgiven. We can be saved. And if you have never done so, then don't shut your ears to this message this morning. And even as Christians, you know, even though we have invited Jesus into our lives, there's still many little barriers in our hearts preventing the Lord's free access over our whole lives. Perhaps there's far more selfishness and greed in my heart than I realize. I would certainly be nervous if John came to my house asking about my coats and my, looked in my fridge and checking my bank statements to see how I spend my money. So this is good news for me as well. Christ can change me. That's the message of this here. 
I can't change myself. Sometimes I recognize the greed and selfishness in my heart, but that's not enough. In a sense, all I have to do is be willing to admit that and let Christ in, and he is the one who changes me. All I have to do is make my way clear, just like John is saying, clear the way for Christ to come into every aspect of your everyday life. How your daily work, your Christmas holidays, how you spend your money, how you spend your time every day, as we bring down more and more of those barriers and allow Christ into our whole lives, it will lead to an ever-deepening relationship with God, which is worth so much more than anything else. Any coats or anything else we get for Christmas. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But the, the challenge of this passage is just to allow God's Word to expose any of those barriers and be willing to take those down and allow Christ into every aspect of our lives because that's what will change our heart from the greed and selfishness which is often in there much more than we like to admit. So we, we appreciate John and his directness to us even this morning to look into our own hearts. Let's pray. John, uh, we do thank you, Lord Jesus, for... John, your servant, who came with such directness and boldness, and sometimes we need that, straight into our, our own hearts and lives. For we easily justify our sin. We easily can excuse our selfish greed and get caught up with our own lives and hearts, our own things, our own will. And Lord, we, we sometimes... These things, these real issues in our hearts can become barriers to your working in our hearts. And that's really what we want. We pray for anyone here this morning who has never admitted that they're a sinner, has never admitted their need of salvation, has never seen it. That even the message of John this morning might help us all to see it. And if anybody has never invited the Lord Jesus as king into their own heart, to ride clear through into the, 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 the throne of their heart, that that might be the, the position of them this morning, that they might be willing to repent. No excuses, no rituals, no religion, no hiding behind anything, just standing before you, admitting their need of forgiveness and salvation. And for those of us who have done that as Christians, Lord, that we might see all the more the need to continually do that, even as we start a new year, that we might allow your word to examine our hearts and lives once again, to see the greed and the selfishness that so easily creep in, that we can justify very easily as well and stand before you exposed through the light of your word and invite you once again to come through, come through in every aspect of our lives, into our everyday work, how we do our jobs, how we treat our families, what we do with our money and our time, Lord, that we might allow you to be king over all those areas of our lives and remove all the barriers and blockades that we so easily erect and allow you free reign. For we know that's the only way that we will be truly changed, truly changed through the king as he reigns in our hearts. And we ask that you would for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen.